Hi, this is the podcast Queer Margins Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. This podcast aims to speak to members of the LGBTQ plus community who are rarely heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. And this is episode 11, George. This is what makes me very angry about some of the young gay people. Prep didn't grow on trees. It grew out of the ashes of people who died on trials. And I think there's a lack of respect going on from particularly the younger gay community. A, they're not learning their history. Every community must value, honour its history. And I'm not sure that we are. I think we're becoming the forgotten people. And I think they think by just popping a pill now, which is great, of course, in some ways, but they don't quite understand and need to understand where that pill came from. It came from suffering, from horror. And they need to, each time they take that pill, just offer a little thanks to all the others that died hideously and horribly. George was recommended to me by Jonathan Blake. In fact, during mine and Jonathan's conversation, George actually called about halfway through. He's a fascinating man, and he's been through a lot. He's been living with HIV and AIDS for 40 years. He's had three different types of cancer, and he hasn't been able to work for decades. He's 70 now and lives with two handsome and very small dogs who joined us for the interview. So if you hear any sniffing around, it was them. George's house is full of his own beautiful art, as well as books and photos of his dogs and the love of his life, Sam. He's been through so much, but he's still able to laugh and joke about his life. So here he is. I think I was about six and I was living on a farm. And I was in this barn and a girl who lived on the farm called Mary Marshall came in and she pulled her knickers down and pointed at her vagina and said, oh, look at that. But she was sort of quite, quite tubby, so I couldn't quite see it. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really not very interesting. And then she said to me, for a bit of Violet Elizabeth, you know, show me yours. And I went very Kenneth Williams and said, absolutely not, you know. <laughs> How dare she? And she sort of waddled off like a penguin pulling up her knickers and I realised then that I felt that I ought to have been more excited or connected to poor old Mary's vagina but it left me stone cold really and I think that was the first time that I could pin down I mean I always knew I was a little bit sensitive those words like that that looking back that were perhaps indicative of one being gay that I was different, that I was an outsider. But I think that is the first sort of, I was about nine then, the first sign that I really realised that I wasn't perhaps like I should or ought to be, although I felt I should should be as I am anyway. But poor then, Mary Martian was the, the right. catalyst. And then when was the first time that you met another queer person? At school, yeah. At public school, it was rampant, yeah. I had my first love affair when I was 16 with a handsome Australian boy who was sent over to the public school for a year and we were put to share in this room. And he was just wonderful. He was the complete opposite of me, you know, sort of basic and strong. And I was rather effeminate and, and he was this sort of sunburnt sort of ski boy and we just, over a year, we started sort of wrestling, yeah. 
and the wrestling then became sexual. And we then developed a, a complete relationship. We weren't, we didn't have anal intercourse, but we had oral sex and that. And we genuinely were in love with each other. And we had this wonderful world and environment in which to explore one's first love. So I was very blessed to have very early on a, a complete relationship with this wonderful man, Dan. And we stayed together for four years until we left school. You know, we did our A-levels together. And we actually left school together and came to London. Then he went to, to do chemistry and I went to do art. So we split then. But it was the perfect setting to experience one's first love. And the, it was a wonderful love, you know. He was very sporty, I wasn't. He did science, I did art. We complimented each other beautifully. And I now think he ended up in Australia married with two kids. But, you know, those days, he sure wasn't thinking about that as we rolled around the floor. We used, we used to, on Sundays, it was set in the Downs. We'd go up into the Downs and uh, we had an Arabic friend called Habib who used to have a little bit of a hashish. So the three of us would go up into the, up into the Downs and we'd smoke a joint and then we'd all have a sort of jerk-off session. And I can remember sort of wiping up the cum with sort of leaves. Did your parents find out? Yes, they were horrified. Yeah, yeah. They found out about that relationship? Yes, yeah. Really? I was reported. We were reported to our parents. And, uh, I, we ran off one summer together to Lebanon because oh his father was a pilot with MEA and he had a beautiful house in Lebanon before, in Beirut, before it all collapsed, although... And I spent one fabulous summer with him, living in Beirut. And that's when we started having real sex, anal sex. And, and my parents were furious. They wanted to take me to Bognor Regis or something. And I was dining out on, in the Lebanese, and we were being picked up by all these handsome Arabs. And, you know, it was having a lovely time. How did they find out? Um, school reported, we were, head teacher reported to them that we were having a relationship and, uh, and did they, so did they try and separate you though? oh absolutely yeah it didn't work no i mean they the worst thing they did really was i was they stopped me having my money to go to university because in those days rich parents which mine were had to pay a certain amount of the fee right to, to, to supplement what the government gave me and they said they wouldn't do it because i wanted to go with dan to London, and I'd been offered a place at Goldsmiths, so I refused, and so they then refused to pay my maintenance grant, so I had no money. So, um, yeah, that was the way they really tried to get to me, but mm -hmm. I got round that. I um, became I became a, a hooker on Half Moon Street. Really? Uh, which was the upmarket, down, a bit down from Dilly. There were the Dilly Boys, yeah. and then there were the Half Moon Boys, who were usually public school, and so for a year I was a hooker. And that was to pay for? for pay for my, and in a year I paid for three years college. And <laughs> I wore all the best designer clothes. I mean, I made a fortune with very elderly old men, bless their souls, and I learned a huge amount from them. You know, they, they taught me how to appreciate good wine and how to dine, and and then the other the other clients were Arabs, which are quite fun. Yeah. What was that experience like then? Oh, um, it was empowering in a way because I was doing what I had to do to get where I wanted to do. Um, I, I, I found it 
very powerful, yeah, and a big part of, I learned a lot, yeah. How would you find the client? Well, it's a sort of, I used to go down to Brick Lane before a beard had ever been there, when it was a sort of whole pile of old, run-down Jewish um, workshops, before it got trendy in yeah. the sort of late 60s. And what I used to do is I'd go looking for toot and tat amongst all the old throwaways, and I specialised in looking for vintage. Well, this was years before vintage was ever even a word, and you could find these incredible old chiffon dresses from the 20s and 30s for 5p, you know, they were just lying there because it hadn't become a thing. So I used to go down there and pick, 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 and pick up some nice chiffon and then bring them up and sell them to a lady in Covent Garden who, who specialised in that. So I was there one day and then this man said, Oh, Bona Lallis, dear, speaking the old Polari. And it was a, a traveller guy called Doug who was working Half Moon Street. So he, we became friends and when he knew what my position was, he was the one that introduced me to it. And I started with his clients. That's how it sort of happened. And I wanted to be bad because I've been such a good boy. You know, I did everything right. I had a nanny and I did everything I was told to do. And, but I wanted to be badass, you know. <laughs> and that, that was my badass yeah. period. Did you enjoy it? Um, yes, I did. But I'm glad I moved on from it. Yeah. yeah. But like all our experiences, it's an important chapter. Yeah, totally. And it, it taught me lots about myself and mm -hmm. how to survive, you know. Yeah. Did you always feel safe? Always safe. Never had really? one instance of... Um, I think I'm very empathetic and intuitive and most of the gentlemen that I'd go with were very elderly so physically they really couldn't do much with me and you know I used my intelligence I used to tell stories and I had lots of dressing up I, I did everything I could to avoid proper sex you know it was very rare that it got to. Oh really? And were they fine with that then? Because presumably they're paying for that or they're paying just Well they're company. paying for company primarily. They're lonely. Mm -hmm. An intelligent conversation that they can take someone to dinner. Right, okay. There used to be this little club called, I think it was the Rochester or somewhere in, in Soho where the gentlemen would take their boys. And it was fabulous. They'd walk in and they'd see who's got who, you know, for the evening. <laughs> and they were all these, it was so, so competitive, who'd got the prettiest boys of the night. You know. This was a, just at the end of the illegal days, so these yeah. sort of clubs had been on the underground forever. So. And obviously I met you through Jonathan. How did you yeah. two... How did you oh, Jonathan and I used to chase men in um, the coal herd, you know, we yeah. were young, he was an actor, I was just coming out, I was a teacher at that time. And we met in the coal herd, you know, up against the bar, and we were sort of semi-lovers for a while. And then we just clicked and became mates, really, and we'd go out hunting men, really, you know. That was the basis of Joffy and my relationship. And then we went different ways. He got very involved with politics and all that. But I, was, I wanted money, I wanted travel, I wanted risk. So I, I went into advertising, yeah, and... Oh, Joffy said, became a creative prostitute. <laughs> but I was always, I, I've always supported causes, but it, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my absorption. I had other, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to make money. 
I wanted to compete in all the things that basically joined. So we sort of split really for a while and then met up again when I returned to England from Thailand. Yeah. So when did you move to San Francisco then? Well, I did about after I did Goldsmiths. I did four years treat. You know, I wasn't just prostituting. You know, I was actually doing a degree at the same time. I did a degree in sociology and education, and I wanted to teach. You know, children because I I come from a privileged background. Children who had nothing, and I ended up at a school just down here. And it was in those days of what they used to call child-centered education was the buzz, where you put people together in different groups, you didn't put them, it was a, a more communal, okay. a more hippie attitude to education, learning by play rather than root, which is now very unfashionable, but in those days was very fashionable. Okay. So I thought I was going to do that, but I just ended up like a social worker, a prisoner, prison worker, they were so damaged, the children, so I thought enough of this, so I decided I'll try something else. I thought, what I'll do is use my skill with language, which I think I have, to try and make some money. And so I met a friend who said, oh, become a copywriter in advertising, because that's where it is, because it was the Mad Men days in in London. It went on, it was going on parallel here in London. Call it Dickerson Pierce. There were a lot of big agencies producing really incredible advertising. You know, if you look back at the advertising in the late, 60s and 70s, it was amazing, mm-hmm. and America. So anyway, I, I thought, how do I do this? So I took six months off teaching, and I just took ads out, ripped them out of the paper, put them into a book, and then rewrote how I would do it, and that. And I did about 20 things, uh-huh. and then I just started knocking on doors. And the first door I knocked on, I was taken in. And I did six months training, and then I met up with another gay man and we moved to another agency where we were called the ladies. Mm. You know, it was the most homophobic mm-hmm. environment. I bet. We had the most dreadful time. I mean, oh, here come the ladies. You know, seriously, you know. Wow. Give it to the ladies or the girls, you know. So wow. one day they threw this um, ad at us that was too intellectual for them because they were so thick. Mm. It was an advertising for a financial company, right. and it was a full page of black and white in you know the newspaper. So we thought, hey, this could be interesting, you know, because it wasn't a, a trip with floozies to the Bahamas. So it was the brief was that we had to get interest from people who had that English attitude, the middle class, that they had more money than they actually did, right? You know, so. And we were trying to get them aware that actually they didn't have as much money and they needed to start saving, whatever. So we did this full picture of this sort of, you know, the American one with the pitchfork and his wife. Yeah, we did uh, an Eng- Gothic. Yeah, we did an English version of two of those in the semi-front garden. And we just ran this huge headline, Nouveau Poor. And it won the best black and, ad, black and white ad of the year. Screw you, the ladies, yeah. the ladies got a DNA DN to it. And we were headhunted from everywhere. We were, I was earning about 20,000 pounds in 1970, you know. I bought a flat in Ongar Road in West Brompton. In three years, I bought it outright. <laughs> the amount of money that we were making. So 
the ladies did good, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't happy with my, I mean, sexuality. I knew things were so grim and tight, and I knew that inside I wasn't grim and tight. I was wild, and I needed somehow to contact that, to touch in with it. And then we began hearing about what was going on in San Francisco, that people from all over the world were going there, gay men mainly, to try and start this revolutionary, sort of almost gay utopia yeah. of trying to find somewhere where we could be, the majority were in the minority, and somewhere where we could really be ourselves and take control of politics, take control of each other. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, that sounds fabby, that sounds right up my street. So I sold the flat and off I went. Oh my God. And within a month I was in this beautiful little you know, bay house that was like, do you know the tales of the city, Armistead Morpin and all those things? Yeah. I was living there and right in the middle of Haight-Ashbury. It was perfect, it was just what I needed. It was sex, it was politics, it was community. I studied photography and started having exhibitions and, you know, and then I met a wonderful man called Mark from Iowa who was the best lover I ever had and on bad nights I can still remember him. And we just um, formed this wonderful community, you know. I mean, like, the night I met Mark, it was... Uh, one gay man had opened up his house and he had this huge table and we all were going to make cards just to give each other. That was the community activity so we could all meet each other but we had we each made cards from all the stuff that he'd thrown there and that was the sort of way that people would meet each other and I was sat next to Mark and he'd been to my exhibitions and oh he, he, he liked my accent an English accent is very hot money in America he was sat next to me and we he swapped cards and we became lovers and he'd been to my exhibitions and like so yeah and what year was it that you This did? would be 1978, okay. 79, mm -hmm. and it was just wonderful, you know. There were the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and we'd all gather on Saturday morning, and Mother Superior would have this little doll, and she'd wash it, and we'd wash away, all, not our sins, but our guilts. So we were guilt-free, yeah. So will you tell me in a bit more detail who were the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Oh, the Sisters. I became an honorary one because I'm not American, I couldn't become one. Oh. But they made me one called Sister Knickerbocker Glory. And Mother Superior liked to fuck me because of my Englishness. And she took me on as, because I, cause she fucked me, she let me be an honorary one and gave me the title <laughs> Sister Knickerbocker Glory. And uh, I, was, I was periphery, I mean, I wasn't, but it was part, we were all sisters of perpetual indulgence. Mm -hmm. But we were, forming political power, you know, the Harvey Mill. It was all going on, and this was just another form of the power that we were creating for ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, they were wild. I remember one night, I was just sat in my flat, and I had this roar, and Knickerbocker, Knickerbocker! And I looked out, and there was this pink Cadillac, and there were about six sisters of perpetual indulgence, and they all had these, like, prom dresses, you know, the sort of net prom, 50s prom dresses. And they weren't in their drag or anything, they weren't just regular guys. And they said, come on, come on down. So I came down and they gave me like this violet dress to get into. But we didn't put boobs on and they didn't fit up. And we, we kept our boots on. 
and we didn't put makeup on, but they drove down to the Tenderloin, which is where the sort of hardcore sailors live. Right. And, you know, we all just screeched in and took sailors away from the tarts and started dancing with them. And I mean, that, that was the kind of vibe. It was fabulous. It, it, it formed me. And underneath the gayness was the hippiness of it all, you know, the, the smoking of the dope, the just the appreciation of art and the music. And so those two years were incredibly informative for me. Uh, and they still are. I'm proud to be a gay fairy hippie. That's what, if you rip me down, that's what formed me. And what happened to Mark? Oh, I found another man. That was how it was. It's always the way. It, it was impossible to have a relationship, yeah. It was so, um, so easy to find other ones. And relationships really weren't at that time. Perhaps what we were looking, we were looking for fun, you know. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Unfortunately, and I regret that, relationships were seen as rather dull, you know. Yeah. The relationship was with the community, really, not with an individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, it got out of hand. In what way? Uh, here's a story that I think probably will say it. I used to do photography and have exhibitions, and one day someone came and said, oh, I'm having a tea party. Uh, would you like to come by and take some photographs of some of my friends? And I thought, yeah, that, that sounds lovely. So I arrive there, and he enters me into a room, and the room is completely bare, except there's black plastic on the floor, and there's a circle of these men sat on the floor, and in front of most of them is a little box, which inside were shooting up gear. And I sat down next to this one man and he said, would you like some? And I said, oh, I'll have a joint, you know, because I'm thinking you know, I'll be very... And he, he said, no, some, I don't know what, what drug it was, because I've never done injected drugs. And, it, and to my horror, I looked around and they're all shooting up. And then five minutes later, the people fist-fucking each other, one on each, each fist, and the men are like rag dolls. They've got absolutely no idea what or where they're doing. And something just snapped in me and said, no, this is not for me. This is not for us. This is dangerous. Not morally or anything. This is just physically not how I want to live. Mm -hmm. So two days later, I left. You left San Francisco yes. after that? Yes. That, it was a crystallisation of what, how the experiment had gone too far, mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah. That this was not how we wanted to live and how we wanted to be with each other. Mm -hmm. This wasn't, for me, for other people perhaps, but this wasn't the community that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and then why did you go next? I came back to London, yeah. okay. went back to an agency for a year, made some money, and then went off, got a job in Singapore for a year, which was interesting, but quite dull after what I'd been through, you know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> one end of the extreme to the other, from fist-fucking to even if you're chewing gum, you're whipped off. And, um, <laughs> and, and then one, when I was in Singapore, I went to Bangkok for a holiday once. Mm -hmm. Mm. And met my beloved Sam yeah. in a bar and then landed a huge job as 
creative director of a big advertising agency, American agency in Bangkok, and I was given responsibility to handle the Thai tourism account worldwide, which was fabulous because it just meant I went around the world selling Thailand. So I, and, and I ran the, ran the department, fell in love with Sam, and we lived in a sort of wonderful old wooden Thai house. And you lived there for ten years? Nine, yeah. Uh -huh. That sounds like idyllic. It was, and we'd go to Burma for holidays and Bali for the weekend. I mean, I was making a fortune, like, I think it was like 40,000 offshore, you know. I, mean, it was just, <laughs> I had a maid and a car, and uh, that was the height of my own, compared to how I am today. But, you know, it was. And I was in love, and it was perfect. And, we, and how did you meet Sam? We were, I was in a, one of the big gay bars, and there was a. In the gay bars, they have these ladyboy shows at the end, which ain't quite my cup of tea, but hey, it's, you know, it's better than Coronation Street. <laughs> you know. So, you know, I thought, I was watching that, and I saw in the distance this sort of, sort of gen he had the officer and gentleman type white civil servants wore these outfits, oh. and he had a beard. I sh there's a picture over there of him, I think. And he just looked so handsome. Oh, yeah. With a moustache, and he was six foot four. Isn't he gorgeous? So yeah. <laughs> I was sort of, I was out of my mind because I'd smoked literally a whole tie stick, and in Singapore I hadn't had a drug in a year, you know. <laughs> so I, I was flying and I was on the dance floor. I was back in San Francisco again doing all the. And I think he was absolutely horrified, intrigued by me. and. Uh, <laughs> So when the Lady Boy show was on, he came down and stood next to me, and um, the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. And then did you move back here together? No, no, that, 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 that's quite a difficult story. Um, after eight years, you know, obviously we were reading about HIV and that, I developed a lump on my stomach, and I thought, I have to come back to London to have it looked at. So I flew back to London, and overnight, it was diagnosed, one, that I had AIDS, and two, that it was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. So suddenly, and I, I knew no one in London, I had no contacts. I was on Broderick Ward, the sort of AIDS ward. The guy next to me died overnight. Another guy that was in there, I remember I'd had sex with years ago. And I had to sort of start it's like a tsunami building my life again because I knew now that this was going to be the next chapter of my life and it wasn't going to be all the things that we've just talked about that I was going to have to somehow create a, a new way of surviving mm -hmm. this. Sam wanted to come but they wouldn't let him because they thought he would like a, you know, a Thai boy. He had a degree, a master's degree from America he taught deaf children, but they still wouldn't let him come until the wonderful Chris Smith, Lord Smith, took our case up. And eventually he was allowed to come. It took a year, but he had to stay and have it renewed every six months, you know, and they never, and he wasn't allowed to work. So he couldn't work to look after me. So we were destitute, really. Um, uh. <laughs> So you find out you have AIDS, and then... And cancer. And cancer, yeah. When a doctor spoke to you, did they say you're going to be dead? Yes, yeah. they said get ready to die. 
-hmm. And how long did they say, how long did you think you had left? Months. Right. And then what happened? I didn't die. And that's it? I, I learned how to not die. Okay. And, and that's that? very complicated. I mean, that, I had to develop a new persona that was completely different from the one I'd lived. Okay. And I built bit by bit a new jigsaw of, my, of me. I think the first thing that I learned was that I was never going to get rid of the virus. It was always going to be with me. Mm. And that I had to somehow try and find a way of coexisting with the virus, not being ashamed of it, not being frightened of it, just accepting that it was, was in my system and would always be in my system. But what I had to do to survive, I felt, was work out things and coping strategies that kept the virus asleep. Right. And I called it sleeping dragon. Okay. That it was there, I had to respect it, I didn't have to fear it, I didn't have to feel guilty about it, but I had to do everything I could to keep it asleep because I could see in other people, it, when it wakes, you die. Mm -hmm. But if you can keep it asleep, you survive. And what, how, how does that work practically then? Oh gosh, so many ways of just going into yourself. Um, lots, lots and lots of different ways. I'm not my spirituality, my art. I'm finding ways of um, not completely dwelling on Sleeping Dragon. And that's when it really comes to... I developed a philosophy of what I call... You must have an absorption. I use the word absorption. Okay. Something that was completely away from anything to do with HIV or AIDS that would stop me from being constantly, you know, oh, I'm going to die when I knew I was or was being told I was going to die. But finding things that were so absorbing that they took the pain and all the fear away. And I think that's a lesson for everyone, really. We all need an absorption, which is not to do with our work, it's not to do with our family. It's something unique and magical and special to us. And each of us must find that within ourselves and then develop it. And it's got nothing to do with, you know, your, your husband or wife or your children. or It's something of your own mm -hmm. that you can create and nurture. So I decided to get a little dog to keep me company rather than ricocheting into another relationship that everyone seems to be doing and getting into all kinds of things. I thought, oh gosh, relationships are the quickest way to wake up sleeping dragon, you know, the, all that. Yeah. So I avoided humans. And I got this little dog called a Griffon, Belgian Griffon. And she was called Totty. And I loved her dearly. And then I thought... I'll get her a little companion, so I made, she, she was mated and had puppies, and then I had two, and then I thought, this is fascinating, I could then maybe breed them on like, like a stockman, breeding pedigree horses, you know, and my challenge was to breed, and as you can see now, these beautiful little pedigree dogs, and it also gave me an interest, I went to dog shows, so I had a social interest and I made friends with people who were, who'd never fist-fucked in their life, you know. <laughs> and it, so, so that gave me a framework for an absorption. 
And it's taken me 15 years to breed these two little beauties. I know they're great, 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 great grandmothers. And it's kept me in the morning when I don't want to get out of bed. In the old days when I was told, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to die. And I, I would have to get out of bed to give them exercise, to look after them. So they became my sort of one absorption. My second absorption was my art. And I realised I'd always been creative. Creativity was my passion. And for it now, rather than doing it for other people in advertising, yeah. I could actually make things that, for myself that really were, were, yeah. were not commercial but were not pure. So I've always been absorbed in art. And if I don't make something in a day, I feel not complete. It might just be a line of writing or a photograph. So that became another absorption, yeah? Yeah. And the most important absorption was to continue to keep Sleeping Dragon asleep. Yeah. So I tended to... I withdrew into this little world here, and became very isolated. But I think in a positive way. A lot of my friends say it's not, but it's how I coped. I didn't take on responsibilities. I didn't commit to things that I didn't want to do. I, I took it right back to the basics so that I wouldn't get stressed, upset, again because I worried then that Dragon would wake up and I still do that. So I created this little bubble in which I pursued my absorptions, I ate well, I slept well, I woke up in the morning if I didn't feel like doing anything I didn't do anything. I didn't let people sort of say, oh, come on, you must come to this and sit for three hours through some boring thing and not enjoy it. I became quite isolated and reclusive. Mm. Um, and I had, I was very fortunate to have a wonderful man called Pepe Catalan, who was a, one of the leading psychiatrists who dealt with people who were going, who'd been told they were going to die and weren't. That was his speciality, wow. seeing us through. And I saw him every six weeks for 20 years. And he monitored in me through my crises. And there were crises, of course, I mean, because not only did I have to deal with HIV and having had the first cancer, I got a second cancer and had to have a, a surgery, chemo, radio on the anus, and that really nearly killed me. So I had to fight my way through that. And then three years ago, I had a third cancer. I had bowel cancer and I had surgery and all that again. So not only have I had to work through HIV and all its complex, I've had to work and survive three cancers and look at me. 70 with skin like a 17-year-old. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm yeah. quite a... I'm proud of myself yeah, because I, should be. I am really a survivor and I have secrets that I'm not going to share with you today, you know, that... We could talk about other times that how to survive. And I'm proof of there is mm -hmm. a way of surviving. Yeah. Being told you're going to die and not. Three cancers, poverty, stigma. Yeah. It's hard to believe that you're 70, actually. You look yes, younger. thank you. No, yeah, seriously. I know. I, I'm amazed at myself. Yeah. Yeah. I am with what I've been through. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was it like being, um, living with AIDS then, and like knowing you had it and sort of seeing other people die? I was on in the London Lighthouse. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. And I, went, I was up on what they call the, the, the 
residential unit, which was really where people came to die, to be honest. It was a euphemism for it. And I was having chemotherapy for my cancer, and it was in the spine, and it was really difficult, so I had to have it. I was in the residential unit for two months, so I saw people dying every day. One week, there were 12 of us, and seven died in a week. You'd wake up in the morning and you'd go down the corridor to see how many candles had been lit. And I saw things there that no one should ever see. Mm -hmm. Such bravery and such courage and such stress and pain. People dying in the most dreadful, dreadful ways. Reese. No. Snapped out. Snapped out. Snapped out. No chance whole generation really just wiped out and in a people died horribly so many illnesses could get you did your family then ever get my family i mean they were horrible you know i mean they were they called people wogs and packies and puffs they were middle middle everything they were farages they were my father was one of these sort of barstool drunks and um, i think most of my life was spent Avoiding what they stood for, really. Right, okay. They so were, you were quite happy not to have Oh, they, 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 they don't. People say, oh, are you, are you sure? I don't, they're not my family. They, I had a nanny who raised me who was wonderful, and I, and I had these two unpleasant, nasty people living adjacent to me, but, you know, <laughs> they, they really didn't feature much on my menu. And uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really was a cuckoo in the nest. I couldn't have been. Everything they wanted, I wasn't, you know, I was... <laughs> and they used to have these drinking sessions and they'd sit there and they just spout all this nasty... No, horrible stuff. Yeah, they were nasty folk. Yeah. Not my kind of folk, no. certainly not my family. <laughs> you spoke about, like, obviously you haven't been able to work, was it, for 40 years? Is it 40, 30 to 40 years? Um, what is it then about AIDS that stops you from working? Physically, to be honest, because I've had three cancers yeah. recently. Yeah, and, but no, I do work. Yeah, well, I survive. Yeah, Survival is work for yeah. me. I mean, I haven't worked commercially. Mm -hmm. I haven't made... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have gone into work no. with someone with AIDS in the early days. I'd have just been slaughtered, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. And I was open. I mean, I never hid it, so... Mm -hmm. I mean, but no, I wasn't physically or, or psychologically. Exactly. I mean, I've been in some really, as you can imagine, over the last 30 years, very difficult times and places. So here you're going to die and not die and see others dying around you and wonder when your turn's coming. Nothing, I don't think there can be much worse than that in life, really. And then to survive. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a double whammy. Just wait, wait, wait. Oh, but... Why am I not dying? Well, we don't really know, George. Well, when... Are... But it's always there. You know? That thing of being... Someone saying to you, like, you're going to die, and then not dying, but then somebody... It's not like having... I mean, obviously, you would know this better than me, but it's not like having a cancer, I'd imagine, where it's like, you're not going to die because it's passed, or because you've, you know, it's... It's gone from your body now, or whatever. Like, we just don't know why you're not dead yet. And was that what people would say to you? Like, we just don't know why you're not dead? No, they yeah. have no idea. They still don't know. They do surveys on me. You know, I'm, my blood's sent everywhere around the world. I've done in, you know, I've been in books. They've done books on me. And is it psychological that I was... 
one that got away. I always hoped that one or two of us would get away, and they did, and we have. There's Joffy and I, for instance, a few others, but not many. But you just still have to hope, even when they say you're going to, that you're going to kick the back, you're going to be the one that does get away. And I was blessed to be one of the few that did get away mm-hmm. and survive. But have I survived? I don't know, Reese. Life's very difficult for me. Yeah. I'm old, I'm lonely, I'm poor, I'm worn down by it all. I'm frightened about what's going to happen to me. I've got no savings that so haven't worked. So if I take a fall tomorrow, the dogs are going to be taken away from me and I'm going to be shuffled off into a stinky old people's home mm. where no one, you know, that, that really scares me. And What I'm trying to think about recently positively is can we in the community build a little group of flats for people like me where, you know, a holistic could be looked after, you know, people with good spirits can come and help us. That's what I'm hoping to try and get evolved from some of the richer, more fortunate members of our community to organise with their strength and their money to build, like a lighthouse again, little sheltered accommodation for tired old queens like me to to die with dignity and to have care rather than be stuck away here. You know, it could be like a Chelsea old age pensioners, but we all wear pink tutus, you know. So when you got your diagnosis then, that was eight years after you left San Francisco. Well, it was eight years, but I actually came back from San Francisco in 79 positive because they stored my blood because I was giving blood on the Hep B trials. So they had blood from me from 1979 stored. And when they got the test in 85, was it? they tested that blood. And I was positive in 1979, so I've been positive now, what? I'm, I'm not good at math, but 40 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was, Jonathan and I were two of the first people diagnosed, yeah. Mm-hmm. We are the longest survivors. Yeah. So, that's such a long time to, like, <laughs> to not know from and not to find out for so many years later. Yes, I mean, you know, the condoms were an anathema, you know, they were the enemy, that we didn't practice safe sex because that was part of the whole gay San Francisco thing. Sex was a form of power, mm. of expression. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a concept of safe or unsafe sex. Okay, there was still gonorrhea and other STDs around, but there wasn't, unfortunately, we were in the process of loving and doing all this. We were giving each other mm. HIV and uh, killing each other, which was the and a paradox of the whole thing in the loving, utopian, unicorn-filled world that we all danced around was actually a dance from Carve, yeah. So then when you came back to London and Sam came with you, how long was it until he got ill? Well, we, had, we were given the choice of going on the Concord trials, which was a very high dose of AZT, which was the only thing they had, which was a failed chemotherapy drug which they thought might help with HIV. And everyone was offered it. Sam accepted it and went on a, a trial. I didn't. Why not? Because Why I felt I could do it without that. Sam wanted to do it, and within 18 months he was dead. It wasn't HIV that killed him, it was the doses of AZT. 
they were giving huge doses originally, and he just shriveled and shrunk terribly, terribly. How quickly did he get ill then after starting it? Three months. They were giving massive. You know, it's you can't blame the doctors. It, they were trying, and, it, and without that, and this is what makes me very angry about some of the young gay people. They think that prep didn't grow on trees. It grew out of the ashes of people who died on trials. And I think there's a lack of respect going on from particularly the younger gay community. A, they're not learning their history. Every community must value, honour its history. And I'm not sure that we are. I think we're becoming the forgotten people. And I think they think by just popping a pill now, which is great, of course, in some ways, but they don't quite understand and need to understand where that pill came from. It came from suffering, from horror. And they need to, each time they take that pill, just offer a little thanks to people like Sam and all the others that died hideously and horribly. And I get very angry about it. You know, all this chemsex and bareback. Learn from what went on. People like I, me and Jonathan, are what Pepe calls the Forgotten's and we're dying out. We have the tale to tell of the real horrors of what it was like, and we're soon going to be dead. And, you know, that's it. So we need to keep speaking out on behalf of those that didn't survive and reminding the world what happened. What an absolute... How horrible... Not only the physical thing, but then all the stigma and the dreadful behaviour of the churches and so many people... We were like lepers, you know, the papers were sort of picked, depicting us. Just when you wanted love and support, you got hate and stigma and bigotry. And it was a, a, a gift to all the people of bad spirit and soul. And they clambered on it. And not only did people like I have to deal with the physical side, but we had to deal with all that really unnecessary shit. However, there were angels that came, you know, from every every discipline of the you know, nurses, psychiatrists, physiotherapists, they all came, good people did come originally to look after us. And we developed this whole new concept of like patient power, holistic treatment that we realised we'd have to try, they realised they'd have to try and look after not only our physical but our housing. Our, so everyone worked together for a while and there was a whole new model of healthcare which was fantastic, mm -hmm. which should of course be still going, but it austerity killed all that and mm. support things like acupuncture or counseling were taken away and you know but for a while we had this wonderful new model of holistic health care that was created by people like Pepe and nurses who came and you know dreadful to have to do what see what they had to see and you know knowing that they were going to lose people younger than themselves um, do you have any advice or anything to say to younger queer people um, take, take risks, but don't take risks. Don't just go to the gym, have an internal gym that your intuition and your feelings are as beautifully developed as perhaps your outside is. Be kind, remember your history. Yes, just keep fighting for your rights. Don't feel guilty, feel pride. Um, all, all, all those kind of things, Reese. yeah. George was a pleasure to speak to, and we've made plans to meet up for coffee in the future. 
providing he brings his dogs. He's been through so many awful things in his life and he's still positive and full of jokes. I think that's really what makes him such a great man to talk to. When we finished the interview, I hung around for a little while afterwards to chat a bit more. And when it was time to leave, we hugged and said goodbye. I loved speaking to George so much and I hope you enjoyed our conversation too. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes and you can follow on all social medias by searching for Queer Margins. There you'll find a photo of George with his dogs as well as the photo of Sam that we spoke about during the interview. Thanks a lot for listening.